you need a Bible this morning, take it out or turn it on. Find the New Testament book of James, James chapter 1. I think it's a common experience for preachers when you start studying a book of the Bible to preach through it that you find yourself thinking as you begin studying, this book might be my favorite book in the Bible. And you want to say that every time. And I've thought that several times over the last couple of weeks as I've begun studying for this series in James. Our series is going to be titled Faith That Works. There are some notes in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. This week I sent Tyler the outline, at least of the first couple of weeks, of the different passages that we're going to look at each Sunday morning in the book of James. And so right at the top of that list was James 1.1. We're going to talk about one single verse this morning. And Tyler texted back and said, how much is there to say about one verse over 35 minutes? And I texted back and said, I'm not stopping at 35 minutes. Wednesday night church is off for the summer. I feel like I need to make up for Wednesday night. So one verse, and it is an important verse. I'm going to start with the big idea, not just of our verse, but of the entire passage. The big idea of the entire book of James that we're going to look at over the summer should be obvious from the title of the series, Saving Faith is Faith That Works. Saving Faith is faith that works. If ever there were an idea or a concept or a book of the Bible needed in the Bible Belt in 2018, it might be this idea. Saving faith is faith that works. Our passage is short. We're going to read it, and then we'll pray together. You can find it in James 1.1. The Word of God says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful that your spirit throughout the ages has inspired men to write down words that we have in our Bibles. Words that are true. Words uh, that are inerrant. Words that are living and active. Father, these are not just old, dusty, ancient ideas written down thousands of years ago, but they're words that are true today, just like they were true thousands and thousands of years ago. Father, give us insight this morning as we jump into a new series, as we think about this introductory verse in the book of James, as we think about the book as a whole and what it means and what it's trying to teach us. Give us wisdom, give us humility, give us hearts to receive your word and to think about how it might apply to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing we're going to pin down is the identity of James. Who is this James that wrote this letter? The question is important because when you read through the New Testament, there are at least four possibilities, four we could call them suspects as candidates for who actually wrote this book. And so you'll find those on your notes, and we'll put them up on the screen. And I just want to walk through these and kind of think through the possibilities with you. First possibility, and is a strong candidate, is that we're talking here about James, the son of Zebedee. If you've read through the Gospels, you know that this James, the son of Zebedee, had a brother. 
His brother was named John, James and John. They were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder by Jesus. They were part of uh, the 12 disciples. And these were the two guys at one point when a village rejected Jesus that came to Jesus and wanted Jesus to nuke them, like bring down the heavy thunder on these guys. And that's part of how they got their nickname. He is important enough of a figure to think, well, maybe he could have written a book like this a book in the New Testament. The problem is Acts chapter 12, and you can go read it later. Acts chapter 12 says that Herod in Jerusalem imprisoned this James and cut his head off, killed him with a sword. We know, piecing the timeline of Acts together, that happened around 44 AD, which probably means by the time the book of James was written, James the son of Zebedee didn't have a head anymore. So, we're going to just scratch him off the list. We're going to say probably not. Second possibility, James, the son of Alphaeus, one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. He was one of the 12. He was part of the original crew with Jesus, the 12 disciples, but he wasn't the most important James in the group. And so for whatever reason, rather than just call him James or rather than call him James, the son of Alphaeus, they nicknamed him and they nicknamed him James the Less, which I'm sure he appreciated, right? James the Less. Really, we don't know much of anything about this James. And there have been no scholars throughout church history, none of the early church fathers that thought that this was the James who wrote this book, so we can scratch him off the list. Possibility number three, James, the father of Judas, and in parentheses, I've told you, not Iscariot. Now, I know the weeds are getting kind of tall here, so just stick with me. This original crew of guys that followed Jesus, right? You had two Jameses. You also had two Judas's. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, you know about that one. There was another guy named Judas, and several places in the New Testament, it seems like he doesn't go by the name Judas, but he goes by a different name, Labaius. And so it's possible that after Judas Iscariot did what he did and became this infamous character, that this second Judas said, you know what, I I don't think I'm going to go by Judas anymore, just to avoid the confusion and any discrepancies, and he might have changed his name But the New Testament tells us his father uh, was James, James the father of Judas. We don't literally nothing about him other than that he was the father of one of the disciples, and so most scholars think he is not the guy. That brings us to candidate four, James the son of Joseph and Mary, the half-brother of Jesus. You can read in Matthew 13, some of you maybe have never realized this, but Matthew 13 says that Jesus had at least four half-brothers, they're named, and at least two half-sisters. They're not named, but it says his sisters, plural. So he had siblings, younger siblings, offspring, natural offspring of Joseph and Mary. And it seems when you read the list of those brothers that the oldest, right next to Jesus, Jesus being the oldest, of course, right next to him would have been James. Most Bible scholars think that this is the guy. And when you look back through church history, all of the earliest church fathers says that this is the James who wrote this book of the Bible. James, the half-brother of Jesus. In my office, I've got seven or eight commentaries on the book of James. As I studied them this week, I thought, surely somebody's going to pick a different view. Someone's always got to be contrary. Somebody's always got to go out there on their own. Every one of them said, nope. Every indication from church history says that this is the James we're talking about. If you really want to geek out, and some of you may just really want to get into this, here's another piece of the puzzle that tells us we think that this is James, Jesus' brother. 
You can go look. Get your Greek New Testaments out. I know you didn't bring it this morning. You've got it at home, right? Get your Greek New Testament out. You can go to Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, James, the half-brother of Jesus, stands up and he gives a speech. Okay, We're going to mention that speech. We're going to come back to it this morning. He stands up. He gives a speech. Acts 15. Greek scholars tell us that there are numerous phrases and vocabulary words and grammar, little issues, idiosyncrasies that you see only in two places in the whole New Testament. You find them in Acts 15 when James is talking, the brother of Jesus, and you find them in the book that we're about to read. Certain words that are only used in two places. Certain phrases that you only find in two places. So most Bible scholars say, we're talking about James, the half-brother of Jesus. You're saying, great. I am Jamesed to death. Now I know which one we're talking about. What does it matter? What does it matter for me understanding the rest of the book? And I'll be honest with you. To understand the rest of the book, you could just sort of skip this. You can get the big ideas from the rest of the book of James without necessarily knowing exactly which one wrote it. But there's something right here in the very first verse that I don't want us to miss. We're not going to miss it this morning. And that really only makes sense when you understand who this James was. So stick with me, and we're coming to an important point. What do we know about this James, the half-brother of Jesus? First of all, at one point he did not believe in Jesus. He didn't believe his brother was who he claimed to be. You can find this several places in the New Testament. In Mark chapter 3, it says that his brothers and his family came to where he was preaching, and they thought he was out of his mind. They showed up because they were embarrassed that big brother Jesus was saying all these things. They thought he was out of their mind. You can read in John chapter 7, it says specifically his brothers did not believe in him. In fact, it looks like in John 7 that they're actually goading or teasing Jesus a little bit about who he claimed to be. There's sort of this idea of, well, look, if you are who you say you are, why don't you go do X, Y, and Z? So they don't believe that he is who he says he is. And when you come to John 19, you find a very small group of people who have stuck by Jesus' side all the way to the end. All the way through the trials, through the arrest, through the crucifixion, through the flogging, through all of that mess. James is not one of them. At one point in time, he did not believe in Jesus. Stop and think about that for a minute. What would it have been like to be Jesus' baby brother? That's a pretty hard draw, right? When it comes time for report cards, and the report card comes home. When it comes time to start a new school year, and you go to the, the teacher, and the teacher says, Oh, I had Jesus last year. Uh, you're kind of a disappointment. Mom and dad, why can't you be more like your big brother Jesus? You imagine the things that he heard. Some of you are younger siblings and you're nodding. You're like, it would have been terrible. I feel for this guy. It was rough. Some of you are older siblings and you're like, look, we just set the bar high. The rest of you guys need to measure up. I don't know. The Bible doesn't really tell us much about what it was like growing up being Jesus' next youngest brother. But we do know this. There was a time throughout Jesus' preaching ministry, throughout all the miracles, throughout all the sermons, throughout all the exorcisms and all the great things that James did not believe Jesus was who he claimed to be. However, secondly, Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection. And this is pretty interesting. 
You can read through the Gospels. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he appeared to a a number of different people. Sometimes it was to an individual. Sometimes it was to a small group or a large group. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he lists out a bunch of different people that Jesus appeared to. And one of the things he says in particular is that Jesus appeared to James. Not with a group. Not with the disciples. Not with a, a big, massive crowd of people. But just to James. And it's one of those moments in the Bible where you say, I wonder what they talked about. I wonder if Big Brother showed up and said, I told you so. (laughs) Probably not. But it would be interesting to know that conversation. We don't know anything about it other than the fact that at one point, James did not believe Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus is crucified. He's raised from the dead. And he appears specifically to James. And it seems like there was a purpose behind that because of the next thing I'll share with you. James was the leader, not a leader, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he was a pillar of the early church. The leader in Jerusalem and a pillar of the early church. And so I've given you several verses. We won't look them up now. I just mentioned some of these. Acts 15. This is the part I I mentioned earlier where James stands up to talk. This is a fascinating passage. It's the first ever business meeting. Really, it's more dignified than a business meeting. Historians call it the first ever church council. And the gospel had begun to spread outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea. It had begun to spread to Gentiles. And the leaders of the church said, look, this is new. We don't really know how to handle this. What do we need to, what's our position? we got to all get on the same page. So they called a meeting, and they all came to Jerusalem. And it was all the bigwigs at the meeting. So they had some discussion, and people spoke up. And then someone really important spoke up, and that someone was Peter. Peter spoke up and Peter said, well, look, let me just tell you what happened between me and Cornelius because it bears on this decision. And then another really important person spoke up and that someone was Paul. So you've gone from Peter to Paul and Paul stands up and he says, well, look, me and Barnabas, we've been out on this mission trip and we've been preaching to the Gentiles and they've received the Holy Spirit just like everyone else did, just like you Jewish Jewish guys did on the day of Pentecost. So you got Peter giving his thumbs up and then you got Paul giving him his thumbs up. But then someone even apparently more important stands up and that someone is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And James basically stands up at the end of the meeting and he says, listen, here's what we're going to do. We've heard enough. It's clear what the scripture says. It's clear what the spirit is doing. This is going to be the decision, and this is how we're moving forward. And that's fascinating to think about, right? It wasn't Peter, leader of the 12, who chaired the meeting. It wasn't Paul, the great missionary to the Gentiles who wrote half the books in the New Testament who chaired the meeting. It was James, the half-brother of Jesus, who stands up, the former skeptic, and says, look, this is what the scripture says And this is how we're moving forward. I share all of that with you just to help you understand. James is a pretty big deal. And that's confirmed later in the book of Acts. Acts 21 tells this story where Paul comes in off his third missionary journey. And I'll just read you a part of what the verse says. It's kind of funny. It says, Paul went in to James and the other elders. Like The other elders were there, but they're really not important. The big wig you need to know about was James. Paul comes off his his mission trip, and the one guy that he seemingly reports to in Jerusalem is James. And then in the book of Galatians, Paul's writing to the church in Galatia, and he says, look, there's three pillars of the early church. 
There's three guys that you can't miss. They're super, super important. Number one, Peter. Peter, leader of the 12. Unquestioned, God built his church on Peter on the day of Pentecost. Number two, John, the brother of the James who had his head cut off, one of the sons of thunder. The disciple that one of the gospel authors tell us uh, sort of cryptically, he was the one Jesus loved. He was Jesus' best friend on the earth, his closest confidant. So you got Peter, and you got John, pillar number three, James. Not the guy who had his head cut off, but James, the half-brother of Jesus. You add all this up and you say, well, he sounds like a pretty important guy. He sounds like a big deal. All of the oldest church historians agree that he was a big deal. I'm just going to share with you one quote. It's from a man named Eusebius. He lived in the 3rd, 4th century. He was a, one of the very first church historians, and he says this about James. James used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness of the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel. What a great way to be remembered in life, right? Hundreds of years after you're gone, what do you remember that guy? He had camel knees. Do you remember? When he wore shorts, they just, they bulged out. They grew hard like a camel because of his constant worship of God, kneeling and asking forgiveness for the people. He's a big deal. Half-brother of Jesus, the senior pastor of the very first church ever, First Baptist Jerusalem, Chaired the very first church council, gave the final opinion on what was going to happen, a pillar of the early church, one of the very few people who Jesus appeared to one-on-one -on -one after the resurrection. He had a lot of different ways to introduce himself. And when he sat down to write this letter, this is how he did it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He chose to identify himself simply as a servant, a slave, literally a slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, if he would have pulled rank and identified himself with any of the other titles, I could have cut the first part of the sermon off. And we would have known, oh, it's James, the half-brother of Jesus. Oh, it's James, pillar of the early church. Oh, it's James, pastor in Jerusalem. Oh, it's James, the guy that Jesus appeared to. But he doesn't pull any of that stuff out of the hat. He just introduces himself and he says, this is James, a slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me try to apply that on three levels. This is not on your outline. You don't have a blank for this, but you might want to write these words down. Let's apply this on three levels, entitlement, service, and humility. Let's just take a minute to think about each one. Entitlement. It's a problem for followers of Jesus. The idea that because of my position or my status in this church or in a particular family or because of how much I give or because of what my contribution is or because of whatever, that I'm somehow entitled to some sort of position or power or influence or decision-making or recognition or thanks or praise or credit or something. If anyone in the early church could have pulled rank and said that he was entitled to a little bit of respect, James would have been the guy. 
And he could have introduced himself in any number of ways. We wouldn't really have thought he was bragging at all. It would have just been fact. But he knew none of that stuff really matters at the end of the day. It doesn't entitle me to any sort of recognition. I don't want you to bow down and kiss my ring. I don't want you to acknowledge me as something great. Here's what you need to know about me. I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not entitled to anything but service. You know that when a country like ours or any other, when a nation begins to be overtaken by a sense of entitlement, you're in trouble. You know that. That's also true in a church. When a particular local church begins to be taken over by people, young, old, in the middle, it doesn't matter, who feel entitled to their way or their rights or their whatever, you're in big trouble. And in this opening verse of the book, James just sort of walks into the middle of our church and every other church and he just obliterates any possibility that we might feel entitled to something. He didn't feel entitled to anything. Service. Service. There's a lot of different ways that we think about service in church, and a lot of times we think, well, who's the most qualified? Who's the most gifted? Well, who's been around the longest? Well, who's always done it in the past? Well, who is sort of the the default go-to person? How do we think about who is qualified to serve? Do we look at their pedigree? Do we look at their history? Do they look at their family connections? How do we sort that out? James didn't think that any of those things qualified him to serve. Again, he could have mentioned them. He could have said, look, I'm going to write you a letter, and you better listen to it because this is who I am. I am qualified to do this, and you should listen to me because of my qualifications. Instead, he writes to these folks and he says to them, you should listen to me because I'm a slave of Jesus. That's what qualifies me to serve. I don't care if you're the guy on the platform giving the talks on Sunday morning. I don't care if you work in the church office. I don't care if you have a a title like elder or deacon or Sunday school teacher. I don't care if you help with Awana. I don't care if you're one of our ushers or one of our greeters. Anything that you may do in this church, I don't care what level it's on. There is only one thing that qualifies you or me to do any of those things. It's not a seminary education, and it's not a bunch of skill or ability. It's not people saying, oh, you're really great at what you do. It's not who you're Related to or how long you've been a member here, it's are you a servant of Jesus? Yes or no? If you are submitting your life to Jesus, you're qualified to serve in some way. And that's the only qualification that really matters at the end of the day. You can have all the other stuff, the titles, the degrees, the papers, the positions, the history, the pedigree, all of it. And if you're not a servant of Jesus, you are qualified to do nothing in the church. Number three, Humility. This is a guy who is humble in the true sense. Not humble in the sense that he just runs himself into the ground, but humble in the sense that he knows who God is and he knows who he is. And most importantly, for the purposes of this book, he knows who Jesus is. 
Right? There was a time in his life where he doubted and he was a skeptic and he didn't believe. But however it came about, all those pieces have fallen into place. This is a guy who knows who God is. He knows who Jesus is and he knows who he is. And when he introduces himself to these folks, all the ways that he could do it, he simply says, I'm just a bondservant. I'm just a slave. And he's not just trying to run himself into the ground and make you be impressed with his humility. He just knows. He knows the truth about who God is and his holiness. He knows that he's a sinner separated from God. He knows that Jesus has lived a life of obedience and died a sacrificial death on the cross to reconcile him to the Father. And he knows, I haven't earned that. I haven't deserved that. I've received that of God's grace. And as a result, he says, everything I am, everything I have, I'm all in. I'm a slave. You bought me. I belong to you. I'm not my own, but I was bought with a price. Paul said that. And I think at some point, Paul and James checked notes with each other. And James didn't spell it out in all that detail, but he starts off this letter and he says, look, I'm just a servant. I'm just a slave. Entitlement, service, in humility. One more question that I want to ask before we get to the point of this letter. We'll move through this quickly. Who was James writing to? To whom was he writing? The question, if you look at verse 1, it centers on this word dispersion. It's the Greek word diaspora. And scholars give us a couple different possibilities about who James has in mind when he writes this letter. Possibility one, he's writing to Jewish exiles, meaning refugees. So you can go back in the Old Testament. You can say in 722, the Assyrians came and they conquered the northern kingdom. They took those Jewish people into exile. Then in 586, the Babylonians came and they conquered Jerusalem and they took the southern kingdom into exile. All these Jewish people had been scattered from their homeland. That's the meaning of the Greek word diaspora. It's a people being scattered out of their homeland. And so some people look at it and they say, well, look, he, he talks about the, the dispersion and the 12 tribes. Maybe he's writing to these Jewish exiles who've been scattered all over the world. It's possible, but I think you can be more specific. Number two, another thought. James is writing to his scattered church, his church. So you go back and look in Acts 8. It comes right after Acts 7, in case you didn't know. And in Acts 7... We read about a guy named Stephen who gets martyred. He's stoned to death. And right after that happens, you turn the chapter from 7 to 8, and it says a great persecution broke out against the church, and they were scattered. Except, same word, they're scattered from their homeland. All the church members, except the leaders. And Luke doesn't really tell us why the leaders got to stay, but they stayed. James, the pastors, the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem, and the church members were scattered. And so some people say, look, most of those who were scattered would have been Jewish. That's this idea of the 12 tribes, and they, they've been scattered out because of persecution. And James, their pastor, has his people on his heart and on his mind, and he's writing a letter to his church who has been scattered. So it wouldn't be unlike persecution breaking out in Odessa, Texas. You guys move all over the state. I get to stay here. Lucky me. And I say, man, I miss those guys. I, want to, I, I can't preach to them anymore. I can't talk to them, so I'm going to write them a letter. And I'm going to stay in touch with them. Maybe that's what's happening. Third possibility, he's writing to all believers. 
He's writing to all believers. What's interesting is if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, you look at verse 1 and 2, he uses a very similar phrase, talks about the scattering or the dispersion of the, of the people. And in 1 Peter, it's very clear that Peter's not just talking, he's not just writing to Jews, he's writing to all Christians, those foreknown by the Father, those who have been sanctified by the Spirit, those who are obedient to Jesus Christ, All believers are those who have been scattered in Peter's mind. And the phrases are so similar that some Bible scholars say, you know, James is using it in the exact same way. He's talking to all the believers all across who have been scattered. You can sort of take your pick on this. I'll tell you my preference is to take two and three and kind of combine them. Okay? Take number two and three and combine them. I think James is writing with all believers in mind. Anyone who follows Jesus, he's writing to them. He's helping, make, helping them make sense of some very important things that we're about to get to. But he's also a pastor. And his people have been scattered. And he misses them. And he's thinking about them. And as he writes this letter for all people, there are probably real faces burned into his mind that he's picturing. And my guess is... God's people really don't change a whole lot throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. I bet when they got together, I bet James could say, I know the rigs sit right there. That's their seat. And I know the drakes sit over here. And I know Paul and Mona sit back there and they keep a watch on everybody in that corner. He knew. And I bet James, I bet he could just sit down to write this letter and say, I'm thinking about that family and that person and that couple and those people. He was thinking about his people because he was a pastor. Look at this quote from John Stott, one of my favorite Bible commentators. He says this, As soon as we read through the letter of James, we say to ourselves, This man was a preacher before he was a writer. When you read it, you feel like someone's preaching to you, like somebody's talking to you. And that's James. That's his preacher's heart, his pastor's heart coming through as he writes this letter. For anyone who follows Jesus, but he's thinking about his people the people he loves, and the people who have been scattered. So one last question, just to set the tone for the whole series, okay? What is the overall message of the book of James? Two simple thoughts and we'll be done. Number one, I know you already filled this in, but it's important, so you're going to fill it in twice. Saving faith is faith that works. Saving faith is faith that works. Flip the page from chapter 1, verse 1, and look at chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to get to this paragraph, this section, in a couple of weeks. Just look at one verse, chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the implied answer is absolutely not. No way, no how. Zero chance. And I just want you to understand this. In the book of James, we find a recognition that there are all sorts of different types of quote-unquote faith. There's all sorts of different ways to believe in Jesus. One of those is just to be very historical about it and to say, well, of course, I believe there was a man named Jesus and I believe he did the things that the Bible says that he did and I believe that those are historical realities. 
Another way is to say, I believe that those things really took place in history, that the, the Bible's true and what it describes, and I believe that he did that to save me. It's not going to change anything in my life. I'm still going to do what I want to do. I'm going to be me. But I believe that Jesus has saved me, and I got my ticket punched for heaven someday. That's a kind of believing. And what James is saying to us is, look, there's all different ways to believe. They don't all save you. I know you live in the Bible Belt. We live in the Bible Belt. You talk to people in Odessa, Texas about, are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? Have you been saved? Most of the people that you and I talk to, even today in 2018, most of them will say, yeah, I, I believe. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. That's really not an important question anymore, especially in the Bible Belt. The question is, do you have saving faith? Do you have genuine faith? Or to say it as James asks the question or poses the question or frames the issue, do you have faith that works? Yes or no? Because you very well may have the kind of faith that only qualifies you for hell. Saving faith is faith that works. Check this out. Book of James, 108 verses. In those 108 verses, there are 59 imperatives or commands. 108 verses, and 59 times in the book of James, he tells us to do something. 59 He commands us, do this, do this, do this, do this. Stop doing that. Don't do that. 59 imperatives. Per capita, if you could say it that way, there's more imperatives or commands in the book of James than any other book in the Bible. 59. This is why people, when they talk about the book of James, they say, oh, you better get your boots on. James is going to step on your toes. This is why people like John Stott say, look, this is, this is written by a preacher. This is a guy who's going to preach at you. He's going to tell you what to do. Back in Kentucky, the folks would say, look, this guy's done gone to meddling. He's gone from just talking about things out there to talking about me and what I'm supposed to do. 108 verses. 59 commands. In all those commands, he's giving us a description of faith that works, of saving faith. And he's stripping away all the false kinds of faith, all the faith that only sends you to hell, all the faith that only puts you on the level with the demons. He's stripping all that away and he's saying, no, 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 this is what real faith looks like. It's like the artist who... who takes this block of stone and he's going to carve something out of it. And someone says, how do, you, how do you carve this great thing? How do you see it? And he says, I just chip away everything that isn't what I'm looking for. I just chip it away one at a time. And James is just chipping away and he's saying, nope, we're going to define it. I'm going to give you this picture of saving faith, of faith that works. 59 commands hacking away at this false kind of faith. Saving faith is faith that works. When I say that to you, there's a danger. It may be the greatest danger that we face over the summer. The danger is that as we read James and we listen to James, we hear command after command after command after command. We think, oh my goodness, there's so many things that I have to do. And as we listen to these commands, our inner Pharisee starts to come out. And the inner Pharisee is the person inside of you that tells you, you need to perform for God to love you. You need to do this, this, and this. 
in order for God to be happy with you. And if you don't do it, he doesn't love you and you're probably not saved. You've got to earn it. You've got to pull your weight. You've got to get your act together. And there's a danger when we wade through 108 verses in every turn and every corner, there's a command that we walk away saying, Ugh, I've got to do more in order for God to love me. That's not the message of James at all. And so right here out of the get-go, right out of the gate, I'm going to bring up an idea. We're going to talk about it over and over as we go through the book of James. And here's the idea you've got to get down in your heart and your mind and your soul. God's grace is the ground of our salvation. You can't miss it. It's not prominent in James because that's not what he's trying to describe. He's not giving you an evangelistic track. He's not laying out the Roman road. He's describing to you what it looks like when you have faith that works. But right in the middle of the book, he gives us one little reminder that we don't do all these 59 things in order for God to love us. At the ground of all of it, our relationship with God is based on grace. Look at James chapter 4, verse 6. It says, He gives more grace. Therefore it says... God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 1517, there was a monk named Martin. He lived in Germany. He was wrestling with this issue of how do I find God's love? How do I secure God's love in my life? And for a lot of years, he thought it was the imperatives. He thought, I got to do, I got to do, I got to do all these things in order for God to love me. Then he had this breakthrough. The Spirit of God opened his eyes to the reality that our relationship with God is not based on what we can do. It's based on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We talked about some of those ideas on Wednesday nights a while back. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And God used Martin to open the eyes of many, many, many in the Catholic Church. We look back and we call him the father or the the spark of the Protestant Reformation for the teaching that he brought back, the Bible-based teaching about salvation. We look to Luther and we say, thank God for Luther. We recovered some of these doctrines because of his teaching. But let me be honest with you. Luther was not perfect. He had plenty of faults. We could spend months talking about the things that he fell short on. He was not a new pope. He was not a new infallible authority where we just got rid of one pope and brought in a new pope. And there were some things he said where he was just flat wrong. Here's one of them. He's writing about the book of James and he says this. St. James' epistle is really a right strawy epistle compared to the others. It has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. He's talking about Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians that talk about the doctrine of salvation and grace and faith and Jesus and all these great truths that he was recovering. And he turned to James and he says, eh, sounds like Rome. Sounds like a bunch of stuff I'm supposed to do. He didn't cut it out of his Bible, but when he translated the Bible into German, he did move it all the way to the end, behind Revelation. He said, it's a right, strawy epistle. And you can understand, in Luther's day, when the church taught, you got to earn it, you got to earn it, you got to earn it, James just kind of fit right along with that, and it made him uncomfortable. You and I don't live in Luther's day. 
We don't live in a day where people tell you you got to earn it, you got to earn it. We live in the Bible Belt of the United States of America where most people say, look, you just got to believe and you're good. You just got to pray a prayer and you get saved. You just got to get baptized and walk down front and do the stuff and you're good. You get your ticket punched, you're saved, you don't have to worry about it anymore. It doesn't matter what you do, you're good. It's okay. That's what God's there for. He's there to forgive you. And you and I need this right straw epistle to come along and just hack all the false kinds of faith off. To say, no, 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 this is not saving faith, and that's not saving faith. Don't, don't pat yourself on the back and comfort yourself with faith like that. This is faith that works. And I just want you to understand that at the ground of all of it, is grace. Look, it's clear when you read the Bible and you just don't cherry pick verses that you want to make your argument. James and Paul agreed on the gospel. They agreed. In Acts 15, they they were at the same church conference. They both spoke up. They agreed. Acts 21, they get together in Jerusalem. They agree. Paul writes a letter. He says, James, he's a pillar of the church. We need this guy. God's using this guy. They agree. James and Paul were on the same page. James and Jesus were on the same page. I don't have any historical proof that James was there when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, but as you go through the book of James, it's almost like it's, it's on replay. Like everything that Jesus brings up on the Sermon on the Mount shows up right here in James. Just point for point for point. It's all there. Jesus and James were on the same page. James and Paul were on the same page. Here's what we're talking about. If any person is going to be saved, it's not going to be a result of what you do. It's going to be a result of God's grace to you. And God's grace in your life is not just going to punch a ticket, saving heaven when you die, but it's going to create faith in your heart. Living, saving, genuine faith. And that kind of faith is not just assent to historical facts. It's not just going through the right religious formula so that you get all your spiritual ducks in a row, but it's faith that works. And it's faith that saves. And my prayer for you and my prayer for me over the next several months is that we have ears to hear what James is saying to us. Not all faith is going to save you. We could probably take a poll through the room. You're here on a Sunday morning in the summer. You could be anywhere. You could have stayed home and slept. We would have just thought you were on vacation. Nobody would have known. You're here. You're probably going to raise your hand if I ask you if you have faith. It's not the important question. The important question is, do you have saving faith? Do you have faith that works?